Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. We have some breaking news tonight from the New York Times this evening, some reporting that makes a recently unearthed Trump recording even more incredible. Now, if you have not yet heard it, NBC News has independently obtained the audio of former President Trump at his Bedminster, New Jersey, golf club, essentially admitting to a crime. Here is Trump in July of 2021 telling a group of people that he still has classified information after leaving the White House and then proceeding to destroy his own defense. He explicitly says on audio tape that he could have declassified this when he was president, but he did not. Take a listen. I just found, isn't that amazing? This totally wins my case, you know. Mm -hmm. Except it is like highly confidential (laughs) secret. This is secret information. These are the papers. This was done by the military, given to me. Uh, I think we can probably. Yeah. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, we'll have to try to figure out. A, a, yeah. See, as president, I could have declassified. Yeah. Now I can't. You know, but this is. Yeah. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's so. I'm look. We here and I have. And you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe. It's incredible, it. right? No. They, hey, bring some. Uh, bring some cokes in, please. Even to someone who did not go to law school like myself. This really feels sort of like a smoking gun for Jack Smith. You have the suspect in this case on tape, not just confessing to a potential crime, but also debunking his own defense. Bring in the cokes. We are done here. Okay. So now on the heels of that, that audio, former Trump, former President Trump sat for multiple interviews today, and he was pushing a sort of new defense saying, All of this commentary on tape, that was all bravado. Quote, I was talking and just holding up papers and talking about them, but I had no documents. And I said it very clearly. I had a whole desk full of lots of papers and mostly newspaper articles, copies of magazines, copies of different plans, copies of stories having to do with many, many subjects. And what was said was absolutely fine and very very perfectly. We did nothing wrong. This is a whole hoax. I don't do things wrong. I do things right. I'm a legitimate person. Do things wrong. I do not do things wrong. That defense is pretty funny on its face because it is incredibly well documented how much Trump did not handle documents well. But that defense and this video are extra interesting today because of this new reporting from The New York Times tonight. The Times reports that in addition to the search for classified documents down at Mar-a-Lago, special counsel Jack Smith's team also went over to Trump's Bedminster property and went through that place with a fine-toothed comb. Smith's office subpoenaed surveillance footage from Bedminster, just as they did at Mar-a-Lago. And after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago last summer, they were concerned that Trump still had more documents stashed at Bedminster. The, time then, the Times then goes on to describe yet another document saga, much like the one we already knew about at Mar-a-Lago, in which Smith's office 
again after having already searched Mar-a-Lago, asked Trump to provide a sworn statement that everything had been turned over. Trump refused. Smith's office then tried to get a subpoena so that they could search the Bedminster property. But minutes, literally minutes before the hearing, one of Trump's lawyers alerted the court that Trump's legal team had a, quote, team of professionals with military training searching Bedminster for classified materials. Smith's team got the judge to force Trump's legal team to sign a statement saying exactly which parts of Bedminster had been searched. Because we know how it went down at Mar-a-Lago. And it really looks like Jack Smith did his homework on this one. But here is the thing. At least so far, special counsel Jack Smith does not appear to be charging Trump for what it seems he did on that tape up at Bedminster. There is no charge, not a single charge, in Trump's indictment about the dissemination of classified materials. There aren't even charges for anything that happened in the state of New Jersey. So far, the special counsel has just very narrowly charged Trump with 31 counts of the willful retention of national defense information, three counts of withholding or concealing documents in a federal investigation, two counts of making false statements to the FBI, and one count of obstruction of justice. And all of that is in the state of Florida. So what is special counsel Jack Smith doing here? Why has he, at least so far, why has he not used this tape as a smoking gun to charge Donald Trump with more crimes. Well, this is actually one of the rare cases in which we have sort of a hint from the man himself, the man being special counsel Jack Smith. This is a legal filing written by Smith and his team and submitted to the judge in Florida last week. In it, the special counsel's team describes its case like this. It has only two defendants. It involves straightforward theories of liability, and it does not present novel questions of fact or law. In other words, the case so far is simple. It is straightforward, and there is a ton of precedent. I mean, literally last week, just last week, a former FBI analyst in Kansas was sentenced to multiple years in prison for the exact same charge that Donald Trump is now facing, the willful retention of national defense information. That FBI analyst was also keeping hundreds of classified documents in her bathroom, apparently Bathrooms are a popular place for classified documents. So as wild as Trump's alleged crimes here are, they aren't even original. And it seems that that is the point. The way Jack Smith's indictment lays out Trump's discussion of classified documents at Bedminster doesn't seem to be using it as the basis for its own charge. Instead, the special counsel seems to be using this blockbuster tape, and it is a blockbuster, to bolster his other very straightforward charges with an incredible, pretty jaw-dropping example of Donald Trump's intent. Joining us now to break down this very interesting series of events and breaking news are two of our brightest legal minds, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC legal analyst Joyce Vance, as well as attorney Mark Zaid, who specializes in national security matters. Thank you both for being here. Joyce, I was stunned when I read this Times reporting about the degree to which Uh, Special Counsel Jack Smith has been fighting Trump and his legal team about potential document retention at Bedminster, and yet there are no charges in New Jersey as yet and maybe ever. How do you read the lack of, I guess, um, criminal pursuit in the state of New Jersey on the part of the special counsel? 
Sure. So there are a couple of possible explanations, Alex, and we don't know for certain which one is, is the truth. But it's possible, based on what we do know, that the special counsel's team doesn't believe that they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. They may not have the document from Bedminster, although they have testimony you'd like to be able to surface the document itself. And so that's one possibility, that they just don't have it, that they're comfortable with using the storytelling that they have and the tape as evidence to prove motive, opportunity, knowledge in the Florida case. It certainly is compelling evidence. There's another possibility here, and there have been folks who have suggested that there could be a, a case that prosecutors have in their hip pocket in case anything goes wrong down in Florida, separate charges that they could ultimately file in New Jersey or in Washington, D.C., it could be that they are, in fact, sitting on these documents and on proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but they're waiting. The most important thing, I think, is what you point out. Prosecutors are aware that this is a situation where you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You need a good case. You need a straightforward case. You need a case that can get tried before the next election. And that's what Jack Smith seems to have brought down in Florida. Uh, Mark, I think it's worth pointing out the timing here, right? Um, the subpoenas, the attempts to search Bedminster, that was all happening in the fall of 2022. It doesn't sound like this tape surfaced until the year 2023. What's your assessment of how useful this, all this evidence, or at least the audio tape that we have thus far, could be in a separate criminal indictment? Do you think that's a possibility? Or do you land where, where Joyce and I think a lot of other folks are, which is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Go with Mar-a-Lago. That's the strongest case you have. It's very clear. It's not novel. No, I agree 100% with Joyce. So one thing we don't know is while there were witnesses clearly, because you can hear them on the tape, we don't know what they said. Uh, it, it has been reported that at least one, maybe two or three of them have been brought before the grand jury, but perhaps they testified that they didn't see the document clearly. They didn't know if it had a classified cover sheet. They don't know if it had any markings. And that would fit within the bravado argument that Donald Trump is making now that he didn't have any classified information in his possession. That's one possibility. But the reality is this tape has two strong points going for it where it doesn't make a difference whether or not the document was classified. One, first, that a Trump himself makes it very clear that he understands what his lawful authority was. He could declassify information when he was president. He couldn't declassify information when he was not president. And he at least purports to pretend uh, if not have classified information that has not been declassified in his possession. The second point that will be useful for the jury to hear is the notion of when you hear the audio tape, it certainly gives the impression that Trump was holding a classified document in his hand. So now when he claims he actually was not, he was in effect lying to his closest staff who remain to this day loyal to him, that's going to, I think, undermine his credibility before the jury as well. If he's going to lie to his closest staff and friends, then what's to say he's not lying anytime he opens his mouth? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the bravado defense, Joyce. I mean, on the tape, he literally says, these are the papers. This was done by the military and given to me. 
and then refers to declassifying it, and there's a whole back and forth. I mean, I guess that's the best defense here. Is that the best defense here, Joyce? That it's bravado? If you're... You know, if your best defense is bravado, in essence, you're saying my defense is that I was lying, right? That's a terrible defense, certainly for a former president and for anyone to make in front of a jury. But there's a little problem underlying this, which is that for Trump to put on this defense, uh, there's a good chance he would have to take the witness stand. And that's just something he can't do. No, no lawyer could let Donald Trump take the witness stand in his own defense without committing malpractice. So perhaps they cobble together some of his television appearances and they put that in front of the jury. But at the end of the day, you still have a defendant telling the jury, hey, I'm a liar, so you shouldn't convict me. And, and you know, juries are smart. Juries, and, and Mark knows this like I do, you can put contradictory statements that witnesses make or that defendants make in front of juries and they can sort that out. They know what's going on. It's a terrible defense here. Uh, I am also to talk about the, the, the asymmetry of the, of the defense and the prosecution here, Mark. We know um, from court filings that Jack Smith, the special counsel's office, may bring as many as 84 potential witnesses in the Mar-a-Lago case. I mean, you look at the evidence that we're amassing. They have this tape from Bedminster that they're not even charging on that's basically used to show motivation. They have maybe 84 or more witnesses lined up on Mar-a-Lago, and they're still pursuing this very narrow, <clears throat> not novel uh, charge here, right? A willful retention of classified documents. Do you think, I mean, is it your assessment, and I know I'm, I'm asking you to uh, sort of uh, predict here, but, but, but based on the way they've put this Mar-a-Lago case together, do you think the special counsel will be similarly circumscribed in potential charges for the January 6th uh, investigation that's currently underway. Well, those are very, very different cases. The January 6th case is legally problematic, factually not so problematic. I mean, look, uh, and I'll, I'll fully disclose, I'm suing Donald Trump for the estate of officer, Capitol Police officer Brian Sicknick for January 6, alleging essentially that he could be prosecuted for a crime, but obviously we have a civil burden much, much lower. That would involve some novel application of laws that typically would not have been applied in that type of situation. We just haven't had that fact pattern. The fact pattern in the Mar-a-Lago case is exactly what you described when you reported on the former FBI agent who just got sentenced to prison. This happens, I don't want to say all the time, but routinely enough that it is very open and shut, black and white type case. And any case brought against the former president of the United States should be just that. The, you know, no special counsel or the attorney general is going to want to push such a novel case because the ramifications for losing that case are going to be horrible for the country. I mean, obviously the conviction is horrible for the country, but good for the rule of law. So we'll see what happens with January 6th, but I expect the Mar-a-Lago case, or a parallel Bedminster, or a parallel D.C. case, if it goes that way, depending on how Judge Cannon rules, to stay very steadfast and straightforward. Yeah, I guess, Joyce, part of the reason I'm asking about how narrow uh, potential indictments could be or charges could be for January 6th is because we have some reporting from The Washington Post that, you know, Special Counsel Smith's office is looking at 
potential wire fraud charges in, in, so, in the way that the Trump campaign solicited donations based on advertisements and, and messaging about uh, election fraud that didn't exist, that they knew didn't exist. I mean, could, could that end up being the end of the road for the January 6th investigation? Who can know? What we do know as of a few hours ago is that Rudy Giuliani was interviewed in Jack Smith's probe. We know that Brad Raffensperger is going to be interviewed by the special counsel's office. I mean, what does that suggest to you in terms of his, how aggressively he's pursuing this, how, how broad a blanket he's throwing over the investigation? Yes, yeah, so prosecutors here look like they're doing what prosecutors do when they're trying to get ready to make a prosecutive decision, when they're trying to get ready to decide whether they have sufficient evidence to indict, who they have that evidence on, and, and what the charges should be. And that doesn't presuppose that they've made the decision to go ahead. They're just dotting the I's and crossing the T's. You, for instance, have to talk to Rudy Giuliani. He's either a witness for you or a witness against you, maybe some of each. You've got to know it's good to lock him down under oath. And really what's going on here, I think, is an assessment of what those charges would look like. It could be a very narrow charge focused solely on a conspiracy involving the effort to interfere with the Electoral College vote certification. Or it could be something much broader that looks at all of the lawyers around Trump, their efforts to concoct a larger plan that maybe involved false allegations of fraud, the big lie, the fake slates of electors. And it could even go as far as, as you've pointed out towards this notion that, that Trump or that someone in the Trump orbit continued to use these allegations of fraud even after January 6th to fundraise and to do that fraudulently. You can write a big, complicated case. You can write a simple case. It's much the same problem that Fonnie Willis seems to be um, facing in Fulton County. Do you indict a RICO case or something much narrower? And ultimately, prosecutors have to make a good judgment call about where the facts lie, where their evidence can take them, given what the law is once you apply those facts to the law, and what does justice. That's the ultimate question with January 6th. How do you get justice for the American people? Such an elusive question. Um, sure to be discussed a lot in the coming years. Uh, Joyce Vance and Mark Zay, thank you both for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. We have more to get to this evening, including big surprises from the Roberts court. Hmm. That and the U.S. intelligence community's failure to take seriously the white rage that led to the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That is next. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. It's Monday night.
It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. It was early on Christmas morning of 2020 in Nashville, Tennessee, when residents saw a mysterious RV pull up to a commercial street. There were gunshots, followed by a computerized voice telling people to evacuate now. A few minutes later, the RV exploded. It caused major damage to the surrounding area, and it killed the driver inside. It was later revealed that the man responsible for that suicide bombing, he acted alone. But at the time, someone saw the news about that Nashville bombing and became concerned that it might be part of a larger domestic terrorist attack, an attack that person knew was supposed to take place at the U.S. Capitol in less than two weeks on January 6th. And so that person sent an anonymous tip to the FBI, quote, they will all be armed. They think that they will have a large enough group to march into D.C. armed and will outnumber the police so they can't be stopped. They believe that since the election was stolen, that it's their constitutional right to overtake the government. And during this coup, no U.S. laws apply. Their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. Especially after what happened in Nashville today, this could be a test run. I think they will have large numbers and every single one of them is expecting and eager to use their weapons. That tip was one of many examples listed in a new Senate report on the intelligence failures leading up to the Capitol attack. The report paints a damning picture of the missed opportunities to prevent or prepare for that insurrection. But what might be the most revealing here is that it confirms what many people, including President Biden, what many people knew to be true in the moments right after January 6th. No one can tell me that if had been a group of Black Lives Matter protesting yesterday, there wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been treated very, very differently than the mob of thugs that stormed the Capitol. We all, we all know that's true. And it is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. According to the Senate report, in the lead up to January 6th, the intelligence community focused intensely on Black-led racial justice protests while effectively ignoring threats from right-wing domestic terrorists. In the summer of 2020, just a few months before the attack, protests erupted across the country over the killing of George Floyd. According to the Senate's report, during those protests, intelligence leadership was particularly focused on the civil unrest in Portland, and everything relating to it was treated as being urgent. Intelligence collectors were pressured to find evidence to support management's conclusion about the Portland protests, such as by linking the protests to Antifa, despite the fact that overwhelming intelligence regarding the motivations or affiliations of the violent protesters did not exist. Following those protests, an internal review at DHS found that intelligence officials had been too zealous 
in trying to prove racial justice protests were part of some Antifa conspiracy. The evidence simply did not exist. And so instead of redirecting its attention toward real domestic threats, like right-wing extremism, the Department of Homeland Security decided it would just investigate everyone a little bit less. The report describes a pendulum swing within the intel community that had a chilling effect on reporting information about January 6th. Quote, they thought almost anything was reportable during the Portland protests, but they were hesitant or fearful to report information related to January 6th events. The intelligence community failed to understand the rise of white supremacist violence in America while buying into a false narrative about the violent potential of people seeking racial justice, many of them people of color. My next guest, Wesley Lowry, has just written a really important book on this topic, The Rise of Violent White Supremacy, right here in America. He's going to join me right after the break. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Within the racially, motiv- racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, uh, the, I would say the biggest chunk of those, I can't give you a percentage, but the biggest chunk of that is, uh, are individuals who are motivated by some form of white supreme, supremacist uh, ideology. And that's the, that group, the racially motivated violent extremists, has been responsible for the most lethal activity of the last few years. In September of 2020, during a House Homeland Security Committee hearing, the director of the FBI, Christopher Wright, warned that the threat of domestic violent extremism was growing. Three months later, hundreds of people violently stormed the nation's capital, fueled in part by the racist white nationalist rhetoric shared by President Donald Trump and his allies. Today, we learned that the intelligence community also received warnings that this could happen and that those warnings went unheeded, that there might be armed violence on January 6th, that the plan was to literally kill people, And that attempt to topple our democracy after, not incidentally, black voters helped secure a victory for Joe Biden, that is an example of what writer Wesley Lowry calls a white lash. In his new book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress, Lowry writes, each step toward triumph gained by the anti-racist side sparks a backlash, a pullback on the rope from the unjust system's beneficiaries and boosters. Lowry posits those white fears may be the defining force of our time the undercurrent beneath the thrashing of our society, politics, and culture. And as long as there are elements within our mainstream politics and media 
willing to cynically play to those fears and unwilling to call racism and bigotry by their rightful names, we can expect additional bursts of white racial violence, the horrific calling card of our era. Joining us now is the author himself, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of American White Lash, Wesley Lowry. Congratulations on the book, sir. Thanks so much. And thanks for having me on. And I mean, just such an essential thesis to help understand what's happening in our world today. I mean, there's a reason so many of the stories we're covering go back to this central notion of white grievance, white rage, and and just the fear and anger towards a changing America. I wonder, as we talk about January 6th, this contention that we would have had a vastly different response. I think it was the head of the D.C. National Guard, William Walker, told the January 6th committee, it would have been a vastly different response if those were African-Americans trying to breach the Capitol. Do you agree with that? I think there's no question. I think that what we've seen across our history has been our institutions and the institutions that are charged with defending our democracy, whether that be law enforcement, whether that be our political parties, whether that be the press very often, have been extremely sensitive to the idea of any black radical ideology, yeah. right? The, the fear of some type of revolutionary black uh, movement rising up and have been largely negligent when it comes to undermining, infiltrating, and preventing violence from what is the oldest terrorist movement in the United States of America, yeah. a, a white supremacist movement, people who would preach that Americans who are not white are not entitled to full humanity or full citizenship. And so what we see, and, and we know that, that the populist nativist movement that Donald Trump leads is not only about race, right? We know that there is a collection of grievances there in the same way that the rise of the Klan in the 1920s was not only about anti-black racism. It was about concerns of the urbanization of America and Catholics and Jews and immigration. Mm -hmm. And, And so what we see is that we have movements like this who plan their coups in public and yet still are not prevented. And I think it speaks to some of the failings of our institutions in this moment. I just wonder, I mean, the degree to which we have not only normalized white rage and white violence, but institutionalized it as well, right? If you look at the origins of police forces, some of them sprang from slave patrols. Like when you have a country that is founded, that has institutionalized racism, mm-hmm. how do you get to a more perfect union when you can begin to see not just the the existence of white white nationalism, white rage, white racism, but begin to combat it? I mean, how, how do you unwind that? Well, and I think that you know, I think that's one of the crucial questions. I write in the book, and we referenced it a little bit, that so much of our American history has been a tug of war between diametrically opposed forces, right? Forces of white supremacy. And I don't mean that colloquially. I mean, the literal foundation yeah. of our government being a racialized caste system where white people were fully human and other people were not, right? And, and on the other side, you have these anti-racist forces who are pulling and pushing. I think one of our difficulties is that we tend to overestimate, and white Americans, polling shows, tend to overestimate or overinflate what they believe the progress towards that has been, while other Americans, those who are likely to be victimized by these systems, suggest that far less progress has been made uh, than their colleagues. In this moment, when we see massive demographic change, the rise of a black presidency, a new civil rights movement, cultural changes, what we see are white Americans, who the majority of whom, according to the polling, by the end of the Obama years, believe they themselves face Mm -hmm. racial discrimination in the United States of America, right? That white Americans now believe, in essence, that they are an oppressed, racialized group. And I think that speaks to a lot of the reactionary politics that we see. Well, and and like, don't forget that the the Obama years were, uh, you know, followed by the Trump years when you have, and and this is kind of a bigger question, but what is, when you have someone like Donald, Donald Trump who has normalized 
racist dog whistles at best, ex- explicitly racist language rhetoric and, and calls towards racist violence at worst. How do you how do we as a society deal with that? And I would ask, like, as a as a journalist, a member mm-hmm. of the media, right, there's always this tension between, OK, Donald Trump is a front runner in the 2024 presidential race. What he is saying is irresponsible, again, at best, and a directive towards violence at worst. How do we cover him in a way that is responsible to the role he plays as a figure on the national stage, but also responsible to the fact that he, in many ways, does incite violence? Of course. You know, I think that it is a complicated question. I don't want to oversimplify it, right? But I also think that we can be more thoughtful than we have been collectively, and I don't think it's as complicated sometimes as we make it seem. Mm -hmm. I think that the reality is we know that dehumanizing rhetoric and dehumanizing language paves the way towards violence towards the people who have been dehumanized, right? And so if we have a major political figure who is going to traffic in such language and be so divorced from reality, it's our responsibility to cover that person in contextualized ways, mm-hmm. to, to not serve as a signal-boosting platform for them, right? Not just screaming or live-tweeting every racist utterance, but rather always wrapping those things in context. What would it look like? And this is, you know, uh, this is in some ways an incendiary example, but frankly, I don't think that is. What would it look like if Louis Farrakhan was running for president? Mm-hmm. We, we would not all day, every day be live tweeting everything he says about Jewish people. Why would we not do that? Right. Because we understand that by the function of that, we are just spreading the lies. We are spreading the rhetoric. We are normalizing it. That when people see their most base prejudices reflected back on public stages, it, it, it gives them a permission structure yeah. to now express them themselves. Um, I mean, well, so as we talk about that, there's an explicit example. There's an explicit policy area that's been that is kind of like the hotbed of some of the most disgusting and violently racist rhetoric, which is whenever you have Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis talk about immigration. Mm-hmm. To me, on the outside, immigration feels like the kind of county fair where Republicans are invited in to give their most uh, to, to dehumanize brown and black people in a way that is explicitly racist, but is sort of covered by the veneer of, uh, you know, legal questions of legality and what we're going to do about the, the policy, the thorny policy issue of immigration. Right. It's like the hall pass that you can have to express white rage and white grievance and white racism. Um, and directed at a group of brown people while still remaining in polite society and not being deemed a racist because you're talking about undocumented people. Um, let's talk to me about the way in which you feel. I mean, how <laughs> what do you think of the suggestions that have been made thus far on the part of, let's say, Ron DeSantis? I think it was yesterday mm-hmm. uh, announcing his plans to end birthright citizenship. Uh, for Americans born in America, well, people born in America. Well, I think that's an ex- excellent example of what we're talking about, where it masquerades as a policy issue and policy debate, but reality is the expression of vibes, right? Aren't these people scary? It isn't the country changing in ways you don't like. Let's remember the 14th Amendment, uh, which legalizes birthright citizenship, was a corrective to the Dred Scott decision, right? So this is literally our remedy to the Supreme Court saying that black people are subhuman, um, was our birthright citizenship creation. Secondarily, the president can't get rid of it. That's not how the Constitution works. So this is completely messaging, right? It's not actually a policy proposal. I think about the interview that Gavin Newsom did recently with Sean Hannity. Mm -hmm. And they have this back and forth about immigration. And Hannity lays out all his talking points. And Newsom goes, well, 
look, I think we should solve this. And the biggest problem is the brokenness within the system. Let's talk about the visa policies and let's talk about the process and let's talk about the line, right? That if we want to solve the issue of our immigration system not working, there are actually like bureaucratic things we could do. But none of those things are the things that our candidates are talking about. I think that gives away the game. It speaks to the fact that these are, these are, this is about messaging. It's about the feeling. It's about playing on an anxiety. It also, cuts to a, a real rich history. What people forget is that when the Klan was at its most powerful in the 1920s, yeah. its major victory was an immigration bill in 1924. Yeah. That this idea of how do we keep other people out, how do we define who is an American and who is not, which makes us think about the birther movement. And is this black guy who got elected president, is he really one of us, right? This question of are the children of these immigrants, are they really one of us? Mm-hmm. It speaks to a very base prejudice that is currently aggravated and activated among many of our fellow Americans, it's effective politics. It's why Donald Trump was able to get elected. It's why we saw the Tea Party wave in many places. It's part of what we saw on January 6th. But it imperils people and imperils people's lives. I'm with you. I think this is the central argument in American politics and American life, which is who gets to be an American, what country are we, and who belongs here? I mean, I think it animates almost everything in our in in the in our country today, um, it's such a a timely book. It's an essential book. Wes, uh, thanks for writing it. Thanks for coming on the show to talk about it. Um, Wesley Lowry, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author of American White Lash. Good luck with book sales and the book tour, my friends. Thank you so much. When we come back, Supreme Court watchers had braced for bad news for democracy and got maybe a pleasant surprise today. What is going on on the Roberts Court? That is next. Today, in a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court shut down a fringe legal theory largely pushed by Donald Trump's allies that would have radically changed the way federal elections are conducted in this country. The case, which was brought by North Carolina Republicans, revolved around something called the independent state legislature theory. It's an idea based on a very far-fetched interpretation of the Constitution's election clause, which says that the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and U.S. representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Now, proponents of the independent state legislature theory believe that those words magically gave state legislatures total power over U.S. elections and that their decisions cannot be undone by state courts. So basically, that would give say, a Republican-controlled state legislature the power to gerrymander maps or to disenfranchise entire groups of voters, and the courts would have no power to stop them. Today's Supreme Court decision, which was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, it poured cold water on this idea, and it stated clearly that legislatures do not have the power to make unilateral decisions regarding federal elections. So bad news for state legislators who wanted to total control over American democracy. Now, this decision comes after the Supreme Court earlier this month stepped back from the brink of totally gutting Section 2 of the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act. That ruling held that a congressional map drawn by Alabama Republicans had denied black voters a reasonable chance to elect a representative of their choice. And in what can only be seen as an immediate effect of that earlier Alabama decision, yesterday the Supreme Court dismissed an appeal coming from Louisiana that would have diluted the power of black voters. Okay, given the recent very controversial and conservative rulings of this current Supreme Court, like 
overturning Roe v. Wade. You may be wondering what exactly is happening over there on the Roberts Court. Writing in Slate today, Mark Joseph Stern writes that the Moore v. Harper ruling, the one smacking down the wacky independent state legislators theory, is a paradigmatic example of the court's dynamic this term. Republican litigants come forward with sloppy, big swing arguments that would destroy large swaths of progressive precedent and in some cases endanger our constitutional system. Roberts, joined by the liberals, plus Justice Brett Kavanaugh or Justice Amy Coney Barrett, or both, declines the invitation. In the process, this coalition gets to look reasonable, moderate, and independent, even though they are just leaving the law where it was before. After the atomic bomb that was Dobbs and its ongoing toxic fallout, Kavanaugh and Barrett must surely be taking some comfort in the shelter that Justice Roberts is offering them. Joining us now is Mark Joseph Stern, and he's a senior writer for Slate covering the courts and the law. Mark, it's great to see you tonight. Thanks for being here. Let me just get right to it. I mean, this. so I think I know your answer, but, this, you know, John Roberts didn't need to rule on this case. So why did he? Was it purely a matter of, for lack of a better term, optics? Well, that's certainly part of it. Roberts gets to look extremely reasonable and like a a kind of compromise-prone justice here, which is always a good look in his book. But I think he was also spooked by Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election by empowering this independent state legislature theory. I think he saw the mischief that it could work in the lower courts, especially in a close election involving Donald Trump, which we may be facing. And he wanted to shut it down, which is why he leapt over a lot of really concerning procedural hurdles to get to the merits and resolve this case in a way that makes it clear that state legislatures do not have this sweeping authority over election law. Now, you point out in your writing that Roberts uh, tacked on a coda, effectively reminding state courts that he's the one in charge, that the Supreme Court is the one in charge. What is that? Is that an opening for conservatives? Or do you think that that is, you know, looking forward to 2024 and saying, and the buck stops at the Supreme Court just in case? You know, I think Roberts likes to preserve as much latitude and flexibility for himself and his court as possible. And that's what he did here. He said, look, as a rule, state courts get to call the shots when it comes to election law. But if a state court goes really crazy, if it transgresses the bounds of normal judicial review, we can still step in and be the adults in the room. Uh, A lot of progressives are alarmed by that language. I understand the pessimism, but I read it more as a kind of statement of principle saying that as long as state courts remain Somewhere within the realm of reason, federal courts should keep out of these disputes. What do you make of his rulings? Again, this is a very conservative court that has not seemed particularly sympathetic to the plight of people of color and Democrats and progressives in this country. Uh, His rulings in Alabama and Louisiana that effectively strengthen the voting power of black voters. How does that square with the overall Roberts agenda? Well, you know, I'll tell you, when Roberts uh, abolished preclearance and took away a big part of the Voting Rights Act, uh, he said, well, this other part remains. Section two is still in force and congressional redistricting still has to be racially fair. And in this case, uh, just a few weeks ago, he kept to that promise. It seemed that he wanted to make sure that people didn't view him as the kind of justice who would just pull a bait and switch and pull the rug out from under litigants. And I think there's something similar going on here. Just a few years ago, Roberts said that federal courts could 
couldn't stop partisan gerrymanders. But he assured everyone that state courts could, that state <coughs> courts could still step in and police election laws. And that's exactly what he wrote today. So I think, in part, this is Roberts looking around and saying, you know, I've achieved a lot of my agenda already. I'm going to try to shore up some legitimacy and some public support by declining to stretch the law even further the way that red states are asking me to. Shore up some legitimacy. We are waiting the ruling on affirmative action, and I will keep that phrase in mind. Mark Joseph Stern, thank you for making the time. Thanks for the great analysis here, Mark. Thanks so much, Alex. We have one more story for you tonight, and it involves this, this big head. Stick around, and I will explain. One more thing before we go. Actually, make that two. There is a person missing tonight from the Cracker Jack team that makes this show. Our very hardworking and deeply beloved executive producer, Matthew Alexander. This guy. This is how we stay close to him. And the reason he is missing is because his powerhouse champion of a wife, Allison, also, by the way, a former MSNBC producer, she has just given birth to not one... But two babies. These are the Alexander twins. And you should all remember these names well because these kids are going places. Helena Graham Alexander and Tolly Gale Alexander. They were born last week on June 22nd. Helena came into the world at 11.57 a.m. weighing a powerful five pounds, nine ounces. Tolly arrived just four minutes later. At 12.01 p.m., clocking in at six pounds and two ounces. Way to go, Allison. I also want to congratulate Julian, who is now a big brother to his baby twin sisters and who appears to be enjoying the new circus that's come to town and will be staying forever. Matthew, enjoy the bliss of being a party of five. And do not worry, the DOJ is requesting that the Mar-a-Lago documents trial be pushed until December. Stay strong. That is our show for tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. 